0: Hello, everyone, and a very happy (laughs) Adelaide to you Uh, all. All
1: sorts of familiar.
0: My name is Lee Constable. I am your host today. I'm a science, climate, research nerd communicator. So if these academics get out of hand, I can translate. Uh, I want to begin before we get into our discussion by acknowledging the land that we're on. We are here on Ghana country. We are very lucky to be here on Ghana country. So I wanted to acknowledge uh, their ongoing custodianship and acknowledge them as the traditional owners of this land and their elders past and present, as well as the ongoing relationship that the Kaurna people and Aboriginal and Torres Strait, people, Torres Strait Islander people sorry have with land, sea, sky, and this thing that we're going to talk about that might be a myth called wilderness. So we've got three amazing speakers today. If you see me looking at my phone, it's not because I'm checking Twitter. It's because this is where my notes are. And they've got some quite impressive bios. Um, Just before we get into that, remember, remain COVID safe, stay hydrated, it's very hot. Um, If you feel like you can't uh, physically distance, feel free to wear a mask, it's always a good thing to do. And we will be having questions at the end that end in question marks. So maybe start to think through those and compose them now if you've got a burning question, we will wanna hear that towards the end. All right, let me introduce these three fine fellows here. We have Associate Professor Michael Sean Fletcher here, who is joining us today. Give him a round of applause. I'll come back with some bio. And we have Luke Price, who is an ecologist and sheep farmer, joining us as well. We have Martin Breed in the middle here, uh, who is a scholar in Restoration Ecology. <clears throat> Alright, now I'm going to really get into your bio notes here, Michael, if that's okay. Uh, you're an associate professor, you're a descendant of Waradjuri we- and a geographer. Uh, You're also interested in long-term interactions between humans, climate, disturbance, vegetation, landscapes in the Southern Hemisphere, which is quite a lot. Uh, And and you're particularly interested in wetlands as well as Indigenous uh, land management, burning, fire and the environment, and humans. It's an impressive bio. I could go on and on, but I think I'd better just hand it over to you by asking you, the big question. It's called the wilderness myth. Could you explain why wilderness is a myth or if it even is to you?
2: Yeah, sure. Thanks, uh, thanks Lee, and thanks everyone for coming, and thanks guys for, for joining. Um, <clears throat> it is a myth. You know, If you track the use of the term wilderness through time, you can do this just easily on Google if you want, um, and you can see how it tracks through the, the British lexicon. It surges every time the British invade a new place. It surges when the British invaded the, the subcontinent. It surges when the, the British or uh, Europeans discover the Americas. And it surges when um, Australia was invaded. And it surges most recently in the 60s with the conservation movement and the wilderness sort of driven conservation movement. And it's spawned a whole lot of uh, very important things such as wilderness acts that govern the way we can and can't use country and the way that we can and can't access country and all these, these kinds of uh, regulations on, on country. And it, it is underpinned by the central notion, no matter how much we try and jig around the meaning, the central notion of wilderness is the absence of people. And in all those places that I've just mentioned, and actually in all the places that Europe, Europe colonised have been occupied for millennia. And this this continent here, at least 60,000 years. It's been, they've been managed by people principally through the use of fire, but also other methods. And those landscapes have been radically changed. They've been managed through ice ages into the current interglacial, what we call the Holocene. There is a deep, profound human imprint on all these places that are now termed wilderness. And I think that's, it's really harmful. It's harmful in a few ways is because we deny the care that country needs and we see the manifestation of this in a bunch of things, we see the manifestation in, in the catastrophic bushfires that we see at the moment through lack of care of country and the thickening of country that's happened and this is from empirical data and from talking to traditional owners. Wilderness means sick country to Aboriginal people and it's really the one of the driving ethoses of the, the green movement, the wilderness driven conservation movement and what it actually means is neglect. You know, and I know that the Green Movement has good intentions, uh, but it actually results in neglect of country. The narrative that we need to lock country up, that we need to remove human activity, deny country the care that it needs, and the care that we get from engaging with country, for connecting with country, is destroying country. If you look at the The loss of biodiversity on earth, sorry, in Australia, we've got the second fastest rate of biodiversity loss on earth at the moment, the steepest trajectory of biodiversity loss began in 1790, well before climate change. It began when Aboriginal people were denied access to country and cultural management was removed off country. We started losing species at a phenomenal rate. It's actually backed off through the climate change era, because landscapes have, have rebounded from there. Sorry. rebounded from there and we're on a different trajectory now. And I see this wilderness movement as a kind of uh, society, I'm not a, a psychologist or a social psychologist, but I see it as a, as a condition of the human mind, and modern human mind. And I equate it almost with over-exploitation of resources. It's the complete disconnection with country and understanding what country needs, that we need to lock it up and deny it and neglect it. And the other end of that spectrum is we just pillage and excavate and extract resources out with wanton abandon and and don't care. And we're operating at the moment on these two ends of the spectrum and we're denying the fact that country needs care and it needs people and it needs appropriate care. And there's a a river, not a river, like a a flood of knowledge out there with traditional owners on how to care for country. And the myth that that knowledge is lost is is truly a myth. If you just think about it, if you go into Southeast Australia where where massacres occurred and, and people culture was beaten out of people language was beaten out of people you suddenly rock up with your new hat on and saying hey tell us about your knowledge of this country they're not going to immediately open up there's suppression so we need to enter in a big long conversation about what it means to actually live safely and appropriately on this continent and wilderness to me is a massive massive barrier to that and uh, something we need to get rid of
0: thanks michael so Show of hands who was uh, surprised by what Michael had to say. And, yeah, Yeah. join your hands together if you're you're really excited to hear what he has to say and looking forward to learning more about that. Great. Well, I'm sure there were a bunch of hands that just popped up um, of people who were surprised, but a bunch of hands went together, including people who were surprised to say you're open to hearing this, which is great to hear. And I'm sure more of you than admitted it were surprised, Um, which is something we want to do. We want to challenge you. You're all here, I'm assuming, because you care about nature, about the environment, about the planet. Um, Usually those are the types of people who come to Planet Talks. Uh, But yeah, we are here also to, to be provocative. So thank you so much for kicking us off to a flying start there, Michael, with why wilderness, is a myth. Now, I'm going to throw over to Martin now. Let me introduce you with some bio notes, Martin. Uh, Martin is a scholar of restoration ecology, ecosystem health, and genomics at Flinders University. Some career highlights include working with the UN and the WHO on the links between biodiversity and human health via the microbiome, serving as a patron for the IUCN Species Survival Commission and teaching an amazingly resilient and optimistic cohort of undergrad students during COVID-19. Again, you've got more bio there. I hope people will check out your entire bio, but I'd rather hear what you have to say right now. I know that you've got uh, links to health and nature and humans and nature and health there. Early in COVID-19, we had, um, it was a a sincere statement at first, we are the virus, nature is restoring now that we are staying inside. Um, It's because we've meddled in nature that we have this virus. It kind of became a meme by the end to say we are the virus, but with someone with your expertise, what do you see of the wilderness myth when you see these sorts of statements?
1: Mm. So uh, thanks very much, Lee. Uh, I think the most important thing that I would just build straight off what we just heard is that humans have this very long history connected with nature and it shaped our health. So if you look at us as a species, we've co-evolved in uh, the biodiverse environment. We're getting uh, grubby and that shapes, for example, our immune system and that's a very old practice as a species and now we've moved into this modern age of living in cities, driving around in cars and being largely removed from that experience. And so I think during COVID-19 shutdowns and lockdowns, you know, we saw those amazing videos of kangaroos hopping down downtown Adelaide. We had uh, canals in Venice as clean as they've ever been from living memory. You could see the the Himalayas from the northern parts of, of India for the first time in a generation. And so really that is testament to our footprint on nature. And yet we are so very much connected to nature for our health and well-being. So where I ha- have spent most of my time over the last five or six years is thinking about how we as a species can really reconnect with nature and how we can do that in a very practical sense because there's a lot of us on the planet and we all need resources and we all need to some to some degree uh, eat and live a reasonably healthy lifestyle. So how on earth do we do that? And I think that's where some local initiatives we, you might be familiar with, the National Park City announcement recently, where Adelaide became the second National Park City in the world after London. And that's a, an opportunity, I think, to re-envision what our connection is as a species with nature in this amazing city that we all live in, or many of us live in. And so to me, if you look at the, the wilderness myth, I think the myth there to me is that we are not removed from it for our health and well-being. We need it, we rely upon it to be a healthy individual and a healthy population and a healthy species going forward and we can actually do something about that and I would encourage you all to check out the the National uh, Park City Charter which outlines some of the vision in that space and there's many other uh, ways that we as a species, as a population are connecting with nature which hopefully we can get to in a bit more detail later on
0: and perhaps we don't have to frame ourselves as the virus as we go through I don't think this. so No Well, Good to hear. Look forward to hearing more about that. Now I'm I'm going to uh, bring out last but not least of our three speakers and noting we did have a fourth speaker who won't be able to join us, but I will be reading out Anita's bio and as well sharing some of the information that she wanted to get out to you all as well. So Luke Price is the next speaker I will introduce. He's an ecologist, a sheep farmer, a rare chicken enthusiast. I don't know if chicken enthusiasts are rare or if he's an enthusiast or rare chickens, or if it's both, but there you go. Uh, Also an avid gardener, Uh, Luke has a diversity of interests which have helped shape his thinking on ecosystem restoration. Luke began his career in conservation ecology in 2000 at the University of Newcastle, where he studied biological sciences. It led to working in frog ecology phylogeography, which is a term I have to admit I'm not familiar with, and systematics, and he has even helped discover several new species of Australian frogs, or perhaps not discover, as as Michael might attest, given uh, our narratives around discovery. Uh, he worked at the Threatened Species Ecologist, has, he worked, sorry, as a Threatened Species Ecologist for South Australian Department for Environment and Water in the Adelaide and Mount Lofty Ranges region for almost a decade and is now the Regional Ecologist for the SA Hills and Fleurieu Landscape Board. Welcome. Thanks. Great to have you. <laughs> <Thank> you. <laughs> now, what, if anything, does wilderness mean to you, and why and how is it a myth?
3: Oh, that's a good question. Um, I guess I, I guess I come at this from a conservation biology sort of view. A lot of my work has been based in threatened species conservation, and one of the big things that we've seen is the change in species assemblages, the declines, massive declines, and a lot of that comes about through this luck of caring for country. This, these cha- it's, it's essentially, I guess, if you think of it, I mean this is a huge change in perspective I think for a lot of people when they traditionally think about conservation, and one of the things that comes to mind for me is this whole shifting baselines paradigm. essentially. Uh, I'm not sure if people are familiar with the concept that essentially that there's intergenerational change in the baselines that we as conservation managers or people tend to hold the line to and often over time there's this insidious sort of gap between what was and what is and I think we can kind of, I kind of think about it you know when Michael was talking that way I sort of think you know people, it didn't take long, it took a generation for people to forget what needed to happen in order to preserve these ecosystems and these threatened species, and it's, yeah, it's pretty incredible, and you know, that's been that we've seen the world over, the shifting baselines um, or paradigm, uh, shifting baselines phenomenon, people call it. That's been around for a while, some interesting work with fisheries where they've shown you know, massive changes in declines, shifts in fisheries, um, to the point where you know, someone, what someone considers 30 years later to be the norm is far removed from what it used to be. So yeah, I I think there's a lot of merit in what we're talking about here, but it means a lot of uncomfortable conversations for some people and some really harsh realities because, for example, in our region we've got a lot of heath, um, and that's a fire-dependent ecosystem. Uh, We've probably got about 14,000 hectares of heath left in the region. Massive amounts of it have been cleared, and we actually have to do burning in those areas to preserve that heath, to, br- to keep the heath-dependent species in those areas. We've seen massive declines where probably about 8,000 hectares of that 14,000 is no longer in a suitable fire age class to support a whole suite of th- threatened species that we actually are concerned about. So that's a perfect local example, I think, to really speak to what Michael's saying. Yeah,
0: yeah, it's great to see that, yeah. you know, these different perspectives, it's a yeah. Venn diagram. There's definitely... Yeah overlap and a lot of work yeah. and and progress can happen in that overlap. We are going to of course be talking today to you all about practical things you can do because we do need to talk about these concepts, these big picture concepts, but we also need to of course give ourselves something to walk away with. So we're hoping to do both here. Now our fourth speaker, Anita Nadesco, couldn't join us today, unfortunately. She was really looking forward to it, but unfortunate circumstances beyond her control meant she couldn't make it. Having said that, I will read out Anita's bio and also be referring to some of her work as well to share with you. So. Anita Nidosiko oversees the restoration of large-scale marine and coastal ecosystems in partnerships with governments, Uh, in partnerships with governments, traditional owners, communities, and universities. She's a marine biologist. Uh, an internationally certified ecological restoration practitioner, an adjunct lecturer at Flinders University, and was recently listed as the advertiser's top 50 most influential environmental champions for South Australia for her role leading uh, the shellfish reef restoration and blue carbon coastal wetlands restoration programs in South Australia. Uh, The Nature Conservancy uh, is a global environmental non-profit, uh, non-government organisation working to create a world where people and nature can thrive, so she really wanted to encourage you all to check out her projects uh, by visiting the Nature Conservancy website um, as well. So just wanted to give her work a plug because I know she would have loved to be here. So we've outlined this myth of wilderness. A lot of people out there are trying to protect wilderness, and the word protection comes up a lot. In fact, speaking of colonisation's impact, the word protection was even used for the way that Indigenous people were displaced, killed, prevented from having this connection. Michael, I wanted to ask about this word, protection and protecting the environment. How can we kind of balance what we see when you remove people from the environment and it gets better versus what you're saying, which is we have to have this active engagement with the environment to actually heal it?
2: Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I'd, I'd challenge you on what, what you define as better yeah. you know, and what metrics you're using as better. But the whole protection thing and, and the whole conservation ideology stem from a particular cultural viewpoint. And I think we need to step back and, and uh, address that. You know, and it should start in schools and we should start questioning ourselves. One of the biggest things we're doing at the moment at institutional levels around the country is, is truth-telling and decolonisation workshops and challenging ourselves about our preconceptions. And a lot of these things, and talking about fire, Luke, you know, and the, the European mindset of fire, I mean, the, Europe, and I'll just sort of digress a little bit here, is this idiosyncratic place on earth that has had a divorced relationship with fire, it detached its relationship with fire because of circumstances such as highly productive environments that led to high dip- de- population densities, relatively low flammable environments, the construction of wooden cities and things like this, where fire became a danger. So, slowly through time, Europe became detached from what the rest of humanity around the world had, which was a long connection with fire. 1.7 million years ago people started using fire and subsequently transformed the vast majority of the earth. A recent paper out in uh, PNAS, Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, last year by Earl Ellis, said that there was less than I think 12% of the earth that has not been modified by humans going back as far as 12,000 years ago. Okay? Some form of human modification of the earth and the principal vehicle for that was with fire. So then what we've had is this explosion of this radiation of the European mindset and the cultural baggage that that brings with you into new places. And so people see fire as this kind of, and we try, we, we try and wrestle with this and understand that you know, this is a fiery place and it needs fire, but there's still this cultural barrier to understanding the kinds of fire and the diversity of fire. If you look at some languages in the top end, there are dozens of words for the use of fire and what fire means and the way you use fire, how, it, how it's enacted, what it's for, spiritual, cultural, you know, ceremonial, uh, landscape management, all this kind of stuff. This is the nuance that we've, we're ignoring, it's not lost, it's there you know? and it, it's sort of quiescent at the moment and we're, we're missing that and that's cultural before it is pragmatic and even the word management riles against me and, and what we deal with, and you see this in the Bruce Pascoe debate with Dark Emu and, and Sutton uh, with his reply, is a semantic argument, it's all based on definitions and Sutton's argument against Bruce Pascoe is basically around defence of what the word agriculture means or doesn't mean. So there's a limitation, we're using English language to describe what you know, millennia-old activities have developed in this place. You know, and you could argue very sustainably for a long period of time. You know, and this myth that you know, Aboriginal people were on the way to agriculture or you know, developed. that's a limitation of language. We can't actually describe adequately in the English language. So management is this kind of, it's this quasi-religious, separation of, you know, this Cartesian split between humans, you know, and, and the world around them, and then this need to manage and pull levers and control, rather than embed. And what we're missing here is an embeddedness, you know, and you can say, oh, I'll go out into the bush or to the wilderness and i connect, you know. It's almost like if you've read Brave New World, you know, you take Soma to get away from uh, from the rigors of the of society, you know, and you take a little check out and get into nature. It's it's just this, this kind of split, you know, and we've split. And in the middle here is is a more embedded connectedness through your life. And one, the big barrier here is cultural. You know? I don't think it's what we do, because what we do is stem from culture. Look at the fire agencies around the world, wonderful people you know, who battle our fires. So there's the word battle. You look at the way they're structured, they're paramilitary organizations with containment lines, sergeants, all this sort of stuff. It's a war. It reminds me of, you know, Tr- uh, not Trump, um, Bush's war on terror. You know, Like there's, there's non-existent entities that we're trying to battle. It's a war we're never gonna win we have to step within and connect and understand and there's already a river of knowledge and body of knowledge out there that we can connect with. And I'm not saying we're, we have to wind the clock back and, and then recalibrate everything but up until now what's the definition of uh, insanity? Doing the same repeated thing over and over again and failing, you know that's what we're doing and we're ignoring this knowledge that we can tap into on how to appropriately live. You know, and in, in my world I, I at the university, I deal with safe operating procedures. Socks—I'm sure a lot of you do that, you know. Like, well, Aboriginal people hold that for this continent, you know. And we're we are insane and completely ignorant not to try and tap into that and wrap it in, you know. And then people say, "Oh, it's not traditional if people are walking around with drip torches or or um, rain dance machines." Rain dance machines, for those who don't know, it, ironically, are, uh, aerial incendiaries that they shoot out of helicopters to do burning. Um, well, no. Humans, one of our hallmarks is developing, uh, sorry, adapting and, and incorporating new technologies. And cultural management isn't the tools you're using, it's your method of management and the culture and the ethos behind that. So you could use anything and it's cultural management because it's the culture. And we forget that, you know. And I think that there's a real positionality here that's born from the church, was challenged in the Enlightenment, but actually just re- recycled through the Enlightenment into the humans and nature, you know. And we're still in that that weird space and it's producing all these socially mental symptoms of hard right brains who want to lock things up, ridiculous exploiters like Clive Palmer who want to pull it all up, you know, and we're we're operating around these extremes and we need to have a serious look at ourselves, the cultural baggage that we bring in and challenge ourselves and move forward more appropriately, I think. Yeah. So words like protection are exactly that, you know, the Aboriginal protectorate, they weren't protecting, they were exterminating, you know, like, there's you know, there's this whole And we have to let go of a lot of that. And that's difficult if you've lived your whole life in a particular way. Humans are really good at confirming their beliefs, very poor at disconfirming their beliefs. Mm -hmm. But we actually have to wake up and stand up and do that, I think, in my view.
0: Well, the fact... (laughs) I mean, the fact that we're here and you're all here listening and I'm sure some of you would... Uh, count yourselves among uh, elements of the environment movement who might have your preconceptions challenged here today. And I hope you are having your preconceptions challenged because it's the only way we're going to keep learning. Uh, Martin, what do you hear in terms of, in your work, do you hear enough of this um, tapping into the Indigenous SOPs? Uh,
1: That's uh a... complicated question. I don't spend a lot of time connecting with Indigenous peoples in my research, but I I would say that a lot of people uh, today, being a restoration ecologist, are starting that conversation, and, you know, it's obviously way too late, and it's something I never learned going through undergraduate studies in ecology, Uh, and I think it's one of the, probably one of the most, the, the biggest gaps in knowledge that exists, and as we heard about, uh, you know, doing the same thing over and over again and failing as uh, are the definition of insanity. I think you could probably say the same thing about protection of biodiversity. We've obviously failed, if you look at the state of the world's biodiversity. And so uh, whether it's the standard operating uh, procedures of indigenous peoples or just the failings of the conservation movement, I don't think there's any disconnection between the two. I'd say there's clear need to rethink the way that we want to repair our ecosystems and I think the most important part there is our relationship as a species with nature Mm. and that to me is the biggest gap in knowledge. How we do that in practical terms I know we can have a conversation about that I'm sure that we have a few ideas and we've probably heard some already from from, uh, the people to my left and my right Uh, but to me that's the biggest gap. How can we all rebuild our relationship with nature and Uh, I'm not an Indigenous person, my parents are from the UK, and I'm passionate about protecting, restoring, kick-starting the recovery processes in ecosystems around the place, and I I talk to my my friends outside of academia. That's probably the most important place to me. I'm a a keen mountain biker, and a lot of the mountain bikers I ride with are not scientists. They come from a great diversity of backgrounds, and to me, that's probably the most fulfilling place to have conversations about what it means to be out in the bush riding a bike and they really like it Uh, and whether they like it because they're out in nature well maybe they do but they don't know that they do and so for me that rebuilding of that relationship is part of the the satisfaction of the work that I do.
0: Now you're using terms like being out in nature Mm. are we not always part of nature or you know are, are you not also you know tapping into that myth of wilderness by talking about Your biking and things like that. How do you Mm. break down that idea that we're either in nature or out of it?
1: Uh, Yeah, that's a pretty good point. Uh, Maybe that's uh, a bit of short-sightedness on my behalf, but people that work and live in cities are clearly not exposed to the biodiversity from an ecological understanding as they would if they didn't spend all their time moving from their house, sitting on a train, a bus, a car to work, go to work and come home again and maybe go to the, the pub or a cafe or a restaurant that to me is being removed from nature. Whether that language is correct or not, I'm not quite sure. But to me, that really is where we can make the biggest differences. So can we bring elements of nature into our cities that helps us get that exposure, whether we like it or not, because changing people's behaviour is the hardest thing there is. Yeah. And I don't think that's possible to to win the the changing of people's behaviour argument now, I'd say that we need to uh, change the environment around us uh, to bring nature closer to everybody because we're probably preaching to the converted. I think most people in the room are here for a reason or here in the the park are here for a reason. And it's all the people who are not here that are probably the people we need to bring along and encourage them to connect. Because I think with connection, there'll be uh, a relationship started.
0: Yeah, and sometimes that comes from noticing things around you. Mm. I think, you know, a lot of us walked past and saw a lot of flying foxes here today and, you know, even the the grass beneath your feet or noticing where more feet are leading to more uh, dust in in the earth. Luke, you're a sheep farmer and my parents are sheep farmers. I think growing up on a farm actually is what got me interested in quote-unquote nature, whatever that means. Um, But farming is obviously one of these um, places where colonisation and changing the landscape and European ideals about the land come about. How do you bring in more of the ideas that Michael's talking about into your practice as a farmer?
3: I think any farmer has a strong connection with their land that they're working with. I think by, you know, you I mean you have to work with the seasons, you have to work with the land. You can't adapt it to how you envisage it should be. You have to adapt to what it is. And I think for me, I I feel deeply connected to my property. I mean we've set aside about a third of it for biodiversity. We've We've fenced. We've fenced off a lot of the the native vegetation that previous owners were just letting their cattle graze. Um, we've set aside an area that we're looking at restoring. Um, to it was, it's quite a specific type of restoration. We're looking at targeting it for habitat for particular threatened species. Um, but yeah, I, th- I think most farmers will probably say that the thinking is probably similar to this. You know, you it's like. Ten, I've, analogy, it's like tending a garden, you know, most people who've have got a garden, and most people would know that if you let it, if you don't tend to your garden, if you don't connect with it, if you don't understand how the seasons work, particularly if you're growing vegetables, that sort of thing, then very quickly it all goes pear-shaped, and it doesn't, it's not actually working in the way in which it should, and I think that directly applies to the to nature, to biodiversity, to these threat- to these ecosystems that we're working with, you know, we've not only have we fragmented the habitat, so the, uh, we cleared huge amounts of land, you know, to the point where, um, you know, we've we've wiped out some ecosystems, but we've also put others on a trajectory of decline. We've already lost lots of threatened species, and we're still continuing to lose lots of threatened species. And I think, but one of the things, for example, if you look, if you take that analogy of a garden, you put it into a patch of native scrub. There's weed invasions now, so it's not just about there's added threats that we've added to it. So you've got you could have a patch of scrub that you've fenced off and you think's fully protected, and you might even manage the fire in there. But if you don't go in regularly and take out those weeds, eventually you look at the hills face zone around here, grassy woodland ecosystem. Some areas are turning into olive groves it doesn't take much. You only have to take your eye off that area or not get out and tend to it, not connect with it, and it just, it all goes pear-shaped.
0: Yeah, so you're seeing, you know, right there, that need for constant uh, relationship with living things apart from humans. Uh, So we are here again to talk about the other part of the title, which was humans nurturing nature. Uh, We want to talk about solutions, takeaways, things that you might want to do, learn more about at this point, and then I am going to put it out to you. We've got some mics after we've had an opportunity to talk about some solutions from our panelists um, that will be going around. I want you to start thinking about those questions, start composing them into a one sentence that ends in a question mark ideally because we do want to hear as many questions from the audience as possible and i know you're quite an engaged audience so i'm looking forward to hearing what you have to say so michael if you had some advice for people here on what they can do learn more about what they can go away with from today when it comes to nurturing nature and, and breaking down this myth of wilderness
2: yeah it's, it's a good question I, yeah. Listening to Martin and Luke, my brain's just popping off, so I have to try and keep things in a in a relatively consistent narrative. Um, so nurturing, I rebel against that term too. I think I think connection's the right word. You know, I think um, you know, and you're right. You know, I've talked to a lot of farmers, and any long-term farmer knows they need to care for country, care for their country if they want to persist. Yeah it's the kind of you know this push towards the conglomerates and and kind of short-term gains and you see this through farming and private native forestry and all and timber industry and all this sort of stuff but I remember way back when I was much younger working at a as a in the hospitality at a reception wedding reception things you know and, I, and I'd see I'd go out and collect plates and you see half eaten bits of chicken and beef and all this stuff and i what's producing this? I mean, what a waste, you know? A, an animal sacrificed its life for this, or sorry, didn't have the choice. <laughs> um, but what a waste in terms of resources, and that's born from a lack of connection. You know, my kids are sitting here in front row, we, we make sure we let them know that if, if what they're eating actually has a place, you know, like it's this animal here, you know, and they can choose whether or not they want to eat these sorts of things, but that connection's missing from the vast majority of people living in the city, and there's, they're happy to waste. I mean, that's just a travesty. You know, so you don't have to sort of a get all spiritual, or b go and you know connect with traditional owner groups to become more connected. You just have to to change your thinking and just become more connected and be more responsible in the world around you. I think, and and that way you can start caring. You know, the, and the whole thing, Mark, we're talking about bringing the city in. You know, we've got to stop viewing cities and out of cities as this kind of nature non-nature thing. It's all nature, I mean, we need to sort of bring it in, and it's all country. You know, and whether that there's a capacity to kind of have plants in there or whatever, but there's a way that we can behave and respect and connect with country. And, you know, there's a lot of, you know, where can we go here? There's a lot of drivers there. There's, there's people who have, you know, workloads and all this sort of stuff that drive particular behaviours. But we all sort of, we do have downtime and, and this sort of stuff, and we need to orient that in the right direction and just sort of start connecting, I think. And in terms of, a, and I think of this, And I work a lot in forest ecosystems and lately uh, trying to understand the catastrophic fires that have been happening since you know the the early 1900s and ramping up what's causing them you know traditional owners know what's causing them you know the country's sick it's too, too crowded too woody there's too many shrubs connecting the ground to the canopy where you know fires start on the ground usually and they can race up into the canopy all this sort of stuff, the knowledge is there, but I mean, you know, white people don't listen to Aboriginal people, we know that, you know. So my life is essentially, at the moment, developing empirical data to, to support Aboriginal communities. And there is, without a shadow of a doubt, the pre-post-invasion period has seen our forests, has seen our land bifurcate, so bifurcate split into two. We've got these areas that we overly uh, uh, perform agriculture on and we keep them clear and we add things to them and we really grind them hard. And we've turned our back on the rest. And we used to look after them with old school forestry, you know, and, and single tree logging and this kind of care where, where foresters actually knew their timber. I was actually listening to John Williams and Rit Woodship, Remember there's that line in there, you know, and foresters knew their timber, tallow wood and blackwood, and all this sort of stuff. It's true. People knew and cared at the right scale. Now we have people in environment departments looking after thousands of hectares. And they might have soil moisture indices, they might have a couple of crews of quick got to get some burning in there complete disconnection and appropriate scale of management. And for me, a good way forward is actually to start scaling our management properly. And the other thing out here is you've got a massive workforce in Aboriginal people who are screaming out to connect to country, screaming out to be recognised for their knowledge, screaming out with the opportunity to get their bare feet on the ground and connect with country and be valued for that. And we've seen the revelation that's happened in the top end with the Savannah burning. Communities, you look at all the metrics and I can point you at all the data and all this sort of stuff, but you know, school attendance increases. You know, um, uh, social welfare you know, dependence decreases. All these social metrics start going through the roof because Aboriginal people are being valued and they're connecting. And this is through a really smart thing, the Ranger program that we should roll out all over the place. I mean, we can actually do it. We've got to stop turning our back on this. We've got to stop driving through and seeing the crowding along the wilderness area or whatever it is that we're seeing, and thinking that the big thick thing that we can barely walk through is actually healthy. You know, it's not. And that's part of the reason we're losing a lot of species is because it's unhealthy, mm. and we we can join a lot of dots here and and achieve a lot of things environmentally and socially if we just connect. So I think that's kind of that the scale and connection is is really important for me.
0: Yeah, and that that baseline comes back, you know, if we've got a tens of thousands year old oral tradition of knowledge sharing gee, that's a baseline we should probably take a, take a, pay attention to and take and advantage
2: I, I've of. I've got to stop after this, but I've got a little idea about. it. Like, as soon as you write something down, it becomes concrete. Mm. And when things are variable through time and they change, you know, even though I, I work in deep time, you know, so over the last 12,000 years, there's been shifts. There's been wetter, warmer, cooler, drier, da-da-da-da-da. As soon as you just write something down, this is what it's like. It becomes this concrete fixed benchmark. And oral traditions are actually a way around that. You know, They're open to interpretation, which is actually more dynamic. And that's, I know oral traditions that have hardwired information about the last ice age, low sea levels. There's no written tradition, no written knowledge that I know about that can go back that far. Now, this is persistent knowledge through the system. So there's something to be said for not being so fixed on metrics and written down and this is the thing in a dynamic world. You know, like I think we need to actually start thinking a bit more about this kind of... River of time that we're on, and be appropriate of the appropriate time. So,
0: yeah, mm. yeah, that's amazing, and it's definitely something we should all tap into because why not? Mm. It'd be <laughs> why aren't we? There's a obviously we want to also acknowledge that there are what we term natural disasters, uh, for better or worse, uh, that have really been affecting people across what we now call Australia. The floods, for example, we've seen. Black Summer bushfires; those are the two big ones that stick out in our minds. Um, so, shout out to anyone who is here uh, or who is listening to the podcast version of this, who's been going through uh, any of the natural disasters um, that have been exacerbated, frankly, through to, due to climate crisis and and due to these these uh, myths of wilderness. Um, so, yeah, really wanted to just acknowledge that for a moment as well. Um, Luke, what what sort of takeaways? Do you have, sorry, I just keep, <laughs> I keep going, Luke, <laughs> what sort of takeaways do you have for people um, who might be thinking, what do I do after this session? What do I take from this? Well,
3: I guess we've got the three R's that most people are familiar with, which is reduce, reuse, recycle, um, from a conservation point of view, and dealing with restoration, that's the thing, you know, I sort of think, I sort of always go back to that sort of retain, restore, reconstruct, so we have to retain the habitat that we have left, we've taken so much of it out, we need to retain it, that doesn't mean locking it up, it means managing it in the right way, we have to restore those degraded ecosystems that we've got, and then uh, we've got a long road ahead of us of reconstructing a whole suite of habitat for a bunch of threatened species which are area sensitive so uh, you really need to make sure that we focus on those sorts of things so when you look at, I mean there's lots of reasons, I mean, we're still seeing clearance at a massive scale, we've got to find ways to stop that, we've got to change our expectations of how we should live and do that because we're going to c- continually see declines if we don't actually put some effort into doing better.
0: Yeah. yeah. I'm going to ask um, people with questions to raise your hand, and I'm going to now ask Martin a question while you're raising your hand and while we're getting a mic to you. Uh, What are your main things that you'd like people to learn more about or do as they move on from this Uh, session?
1: Yeah, well, there's probably a lot. My number one thing would be to acknowledge that there's a lot of people on the earth. There's seven plus billion. And... The vast majority of those people I think would live in pretty socially deprived settings unlike the majority of us. So I would probably encourage everybody to speak to their friends, family, their networks to encourage people to start to get out and enjoy nature because if you don't enjoy it you probably won't value it. Uh, And the way that you do that I guess has to be carefully done but I think probably the most important thing that I'd recommend is people do speak about it people do connect and people enjoy it because it's not nature in my view isn't something somewhere else it is right in front of me here there's a new creek uh, and we should be enjoying it so I've got I'm a new dad my little one-year-old is sitting over there actually we're standing over there uh, and so for me it's about enjoying and, and passing on that enjoyment of nature to him uh, and everyone that I care about so I think that's the most important thing from my perspective. It's a bit esoteric, it's a bit perhaps philosophical, but I'd say go out and enjoy it, because if you don't enjoy it, you won't value it, and neither will your friends and your family.
0: Awesome, awesome. Thanks so much. We've got questions, we've got one over here, and then I'll go over there, so what would you like? Hi, um, well, first of all, that was an amazing discussion, so thank you. And I have a question really for you, Luke, which is on one of your Rs, which was restore. And the question's around, I guess, when we think of restore and regeneration and natural assisted regeneration, the first image that probably comes to people's minds is planting trees. And a lot of us have probably been involved in planting trees. But my question's more about what do you think the human role is in what comes after planting trees? in making sure we manage the land and we manage the invasive weeds and the invasive animals that are now restricting ability for those trees to actually grow and to restore an ecosystem?
3: Yeah, well, I, that was a great question. Um, I think one of the things we probably need to think about too is what's our objective when we plant those trees? It was, often we do a lot of there's a lot of restoration, tree planting, and work that goes on that's not really hitting any meaningful, giving any meaningful outcomes to the species that are declining. We, we do a lot of, there's a lot of, sort of generic plantings that probably aren't as targeted as they could be. There are some amazing examples of others that are targeted. There's some slides going through here now actually of some work that we've been doing, uh, which is very targeted at threatened species. Uh, it's done in a way that essentially creates a type of habitat for those species uh, that might not necessarily have it, we're we're reconstructing heath so there's not even a tree to be seen, it's quite different. Um, So I think first of all think about why you're doing it, I think try to prioritise what you're actually doing it for because I think you'll get a much better outcome for it and then that will tend to guide what you actually then do in the long term. So for us, for example, we've restored about 120 hectares of heath which is Roughly 60 Adelaide ovals um, to date. It's a very targeted revegetation for a suite of declining birds that rely on heath and they're area sensitive, so they need much larger areas of habitat to persist. Um, but what we'll have to do in order to manage that system is we'll have to introduce fire at the right time. We'll have to ensure that particular weeds aren't invading. You know, there's a, there'll be a constant, ongoing management, and we'll have to adapt that as we learn. So, you know. We want to, we've only put it back 120 hectares, we've got estimates based on minimal viable population size for the most area sensitive species in that group, which is the brightly coloured western beautiful firetail that'll pop up at some point, that's a chestnut-rumped heath wren. Um, We know that we probably need about 25,000 hectares of heath in this region to actually support that species. It's gone down from it used to be quite widespread. Right Basically, it now persists in deep creek and Cox scrub, um, and but we've got 11,000 hectares of habitat to restore. So, when, why I say people need to think about where what they're planting and why they're doing it, it's because you can have a much more meaningful outcome in preserving biodiversity when you target it to those threatened species. Um, If the objective is to retain biological diversity, just doing generic sort of work will, it'll help with biodiversity, but you're not actually stopping species loss. So hopefully that answers your question.
0: And also acknowledging you've all contributed to some ecological restoration. Um, Check out the Greening Australia 10. I've just got a note here that uh, there's there's a WOMAD forest Um, (laughs) Over the years, small contributions, I think it's $2 per ticket, have gone towards Greening Australia. And I encourage you all to have a look at the um, website for WOMAD. There's more information about that and visit Greening Australia to learn more about how your contribution is going towards uh, some ecological restoration. Yeah, go for it. For a Uh, second. (laughs) Interesting.
3: So, this year, which is pretty exciting, why I managed to sneak those slides in to plug for this is that um, WOMAD offset dollars, so the offset from running this festival for carbon, is actually now being invested into this particular program. So, rather than just uh, uh, trying to capture carbon and just doing that in a non targeted way, it's actually uh, WOMAD's in, in Greening Australia of working with us to make sure that we're actually having this added benefit. We're having this addition. We're not only offsetting the carbon, but we're, we're helping threatened species at the same time, which I think is a pretty good direction. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah.
0: Great. And we've got a question over here.
3: Um,
1: yes, i just like to... Uh, make a point of, I think the problem, one of the big problems facing all of these debates about wilderness and
2: environment and all that sort of thing is really staring us in the face. And if you just look around, what do you see? You see humans. And I think the biggest problem facing this world today is the human population.
0: Sorry, Um, is this a question? Yes, it is. I'm
2: I'm just asking you, uh, are there anyone... Is there anyone taking this as a you know as a serious problem, and um, it, it'll it'll change, it'll um, require a huge mindset change to try and solve this problem? But I think all these debates about you know small effects of planning... so you know, I-
0: is anyone taking the problem of human populations as a as yeah, a, I don't seriously? see anything
2: on you know on the on the Okay, I'm general just gonna pose that about...
0: question to the panel. Sorry to cut you off, but I just really need a question. Uh, yeah. Do you think this is being taken seriously, human populations <laughs> being the problem, Michael? Oh
2: it's a contentious uh, is my microphone working? I don't it's a contentious thing, like talking about population control really, aren't you? Like where we've got a negative population growth in Australia, but we have, you know, net import to to make our population grow. I mean I think the calculations are that if we all live more sustainably, if we didn't eat so much meat and we didn't consume so much and so wantonly waste, then we could probably support the population that we have, but we don't. You know, so there's, we can actually look at our life and what we do rather than restricting how many, people, how many babies people can have. But you know, I think in developed countries... There's a negative population growth in just about every developed country, you know. So I think one way might be to actually bring up the developed the developing countries to a good economic status, and they'll follow the same trend.
0: Mm. And we've have we got another couple of people with mics? There's one up the back who's got a
3: mic. So considering how much land is locked up in private ownership and predominantly agriculture. How can we systematically support the connection and restoration of country as a counter-narrative to the exploitative capitalist system that our food development and a lot of that stuff is embedded in? I could have a crackle, you'd be much better, I'll, I'll have a little, a short one then I think Mark <laughs> should answer that batting one. That one
0: around.
3: <laughs> um, I think one of the things that we need to do is we need to bring people along with that. There's a lot of people that have land, lots of landholders that I speak speak to. Uh, sorry. And then, yes, yeah, so there's a lot of landholders that I speak to that essentially um, they don't quite understand the need. They, so it doesn't take... I think telling stories, educating people on why we need to actually either retain some of the habitat that might be on private land or restore something that they've got Or even ask them to give up a portion of their land Uh, and there's different ways you can do that one of them is just a pure economical argument you can say okay there's going to be all these flow-on effects from a a point of view for your this this is going to harbour beneficial insects blah 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 right but another way is actually telling them a story of what's going on with the declines give people the personal connection, I, I, I mean that's that whole identifiable victim effect, you know, if we're not, I, don't, I don't know are people familiar with that, so essentially it's the likelihood of people to give more or be more empathetic when they, you can identify the victim clearly for them. People don't respond very well to uh, statistics to, I, I mean, what was it, Stalin once said that one death is a tragedy, a million deaths is a statistic which is absolutely horrific that that's how the world is, but our brains don't quite compute that way, so I've sort of found that those personal connections will help do that. There is a really strong movement. There's been some great work happening in the region by a number of organizations who have got money. Finally, there's been a decline for, I'm not sure if you know of heritage agreements. Um, Lots of people can put their scrub under a heritage agreement, which is protection in perpetuity, Uh, there's more funding coming back into that now, and hopefully they can keep it up. But they're now to a point, it got, I think it got to a point where there was only, people didn't know about it anymore. At one point, you know, s- several years ago, heritage agreements, everyone was trying to get one, everyone was tr- wanting, wanting to leave a conservation legacy, essentially. But then it sort of dropped off the radar. There wasn't funding to help support people do the weed control they needed or fence it, and that's repair fences to keep stock out. But now with just that little injection of funds, I think they were oversubscribed and more and more people want to do that. So I think make the personal connections, give people the tools and the, the funds that they need in order to do it and you'll, you'll get some great outcomes.
0: All right, so we have a few short minutes. They're shorter than the average minute. so let's... Ask a snappy question, we'll give a snappy answer and we'll try and at least get one if not two through.
2: Um, thank you all for sharing such important information. How important is it to take into consideration in how we think about fencing country in trying to care for it?
0: Question about fencing.
2: Fencing or fixing? Fence, fencing. 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 Uh, oh. I'm not a big fan of fences, personally. You know, um, we have the prob- We have an issue now with invasive species. You now, fences don't keep them out either. You know, like I, I, I'm a bit of a quasi-communist. I think you know, like we should sort of be no fences, and we should all sort of relatively the commons. You know, like all of this property. I mean, it was all stolen anyway. So you know, the fact that you think you own it and put a fence around it's a myth. Um, so I think that we could appro- more appropriately fence it. I mean. I manage it but you're right sometimes fences are important if you want to keep out some kinds of ferals that are endangering certain things so I think you can do it appropriately. A very interesting thing and I don't want to understand a short minute thing. You know there are cats in dreaming stories in in Central Australian Aboriginal uh, cultures now. We have a a particular fixation on invasives you know and we have a museum mentality about landscapes. We think that we've got to wind them back and they're locked in that and that's why they're in perpetuity. Dingoes invaded, humans invaded, eucalypts invaded, um, you know, myrtles invade. Like there's dynamism there, so we actually have this obsession with invasives, and I understand that they're very important for knocking out some threatened species, and we need to. But I think we have this inordinate energy, uh, and it's once again this human control thing about all these levers trying to trying to control the landscape and have this fixed thing, this idea. We don't understand the dynamism and the river that we're on, so I think. You know, that didn't exactly answer your question. In some cases, I think they're a, they're a good thing, but I think there's too many. Well, that? No, it doesn't even really count.
0: I mean, <laughs> <laughs> all right. How are we doing for time? Alrighty, we've got a, we've got another snappy question. Sorry. Um, I was wondering why you guys think there is such a big group of people that feel disconnected to nature. Oh, how's this going to be answered snappily? <laughs> uh, I'll give it a go. Yeah.
1: So uh, we're brought up outside of nature. We're brought up in cities. And I think most of us live in cities. And that's way more than 50% of the global population. And that's the problem. So nature's not in our cities from a biodiversity perspective. And we are all brought up in that context, or the majority of us are brought up in that context. So if we can rebuild that biodiversity back into our cities, in my view anyway, that's a great way to rebuild that connection
2: and more learning on country yeah yeah Yeah. Yeah.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. well you know what that's about (laughs) us i think we've done it i think we've um we've we've fixed that now (laughs) None of that should be a problem anymore. You can all sleep well tonight. Uh, We've had some huge questions uh, thrown at our panel, not least from all of you. Thank you so much for being such an engaged audience. I hope we have challenged you. I hope we have stretched and broadened Mm -hmm. your understanding and thinking on things and given you some places to go and some concepts to think about. Please join me in thanking our panel once more. Yeah,
3: Thanks